The bottom dropped out of the labor market for low and middle income workers a long time ago. It's just that the pandemic made it even clearer. So you can't go to your employer and say, hey, if you don't give me a raise, I'm going to quit because the employer knows that there's no place for you to go. So it's that, it's that sense of having no other options but to work that you were forced labor. From the offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer where we explore everything they forgot to teach you in Econ 101. I'm Nick Hanauer, founder of Civic Ventures. I'm David Goldstein, senior fellow at Civic Ventures. So Nick, I I think there's uh, been kind of a theme, an inadvertent theme to our podcast the past few weeks. Yeah, the demise of worker power and right. the massive accumulation of both it's a legal, political, and economic power at the top that defines American life today. And we're sticking to that theme on this this week's podcast too. Yeah, we get to talk to um, this really incredibly talented young economist, Suresh Naidu, out of uh, Columbia University, who's one of the sort of bright lights in that field. And he's been writing about labor markets for a long time and thinking about them. He has a bunch of uh, cool new writing, in particular around uh, what he calls forced labor, uh, the forced labor of so-called essential workers. Right. Which which uh, came to the forefront during this pandemic, right. where it turns out that these essential workers are largely low-wage workers, uh, workers in the, the bottom half of the distribution. And these people were not seeing hazard pay in this no. economy. No. And what's even starker than that is it not only weren't these folks being compensated for the extra risk they were taking by going to work during a deadly pandemic, they could have their unemployment benefits taken away if they <laughs> stayed home, which is right. like, no, you will work. Yeah. And, you know, like I could see both sides of it, of course, but it'll be really fun to talk to Suresh about his perspective on all this. My name is Suresh Naidu. I'm a uh, professor of economics and public affairs at Columbia University. I'm a fellow at the Roosevelt Institute. Should plug my forthcoming book, a book I'm working on on historical labor markets. And I work basically on the history of labor markets from American slavery to Amazon Mechanical Turk is kind of the, is the <laughs> subtitle of the book. You covered, yeah. some, covered some good ground there. Yeah. You've written a lot about labor markets, and you have a recent piece out where you talked about forced labor in the context of what we're now calling essential workers. Give our listeners a sort of a preview of, of that piece in your argument. Yeah. So the argument there was that essential workers, one of the puzzles, for example, is that that hazard pay for essential workers didn't increase at all even though the risks of being a worker in a grocery store or in a meat processing plant obviously shot up enormously during COVID. And yet there was no evidence that wages were sort of increasing to compensate these workers. And it's because for an obvious reason that workers didn't have any power. The normal thing that's, you know, if the 
labor markets working the way the textbooks say it should work, it should be like, you can just go to your boss and say, hey, you know, there's this pandemic, I need a raise, otherwise I quit, and I get another job somewhere else that won't involve me risking COVID. And, uh, and then your employer needs to keep you and so gives you a raise. That's the sort of fiction around which uh, a lot of economics is taught to undergrads is sort of based on that kind of fiction of the labor market looking competitive. But when you actually look, you know, the bottom fell out of the labor market in COVID. And so workers really had nowhere to go. Essential workers had nowhere to go. So you can't go to your employer and say, hey, if you don't give me a raise, I'm going to quit because the employer knows that there's no place for you to go. So it's that, it's that sense and having no other options but to work that you were forced labor. And an important sort of like footnote to that is that, you know, in the U.S. unemployment system is an important caveat that if you voluntarily quit your job, you're ineligible for UI. So all of the workers that uh, got laid off, they could get like the $600 a week expanded federal pandemic unemployment assistance. But if you were still working, if your job was still available, you couldn't quit and get that same UI. And, you know, there's like, it's legally gray areas. I'm sure some places people did quit and you can give a health reason and stuff like, and things like that. But uh, there's still like a real sense in which, you know, if you were an essential worker, you had nowhere else to go and you had no bargaining power vis-a-vis your employer. So that's the sense in which it was like essential workers are, are, are coerced. The bottom dropped out of the labor market for low and middle income workers a long time ago. It's just that the pandemic made it even clearer, right? I mean, that's that's true in some sense, but it's also the case that we had like 3% unemployment leaving up to the pandemic, which is just right. kind of also puts the lie to like lots of people that thought, oh my God, the robots are coming. We'll never have full employment again. Yeah. So I think like there was a real sense in which the labor market was getting really tight in 2019. And my, my you know, the, the thing I thought was going to happen was that I thought we were going to see what was called like Kaletskian business pressure, a business cycle, where when the labor market gets so tight that nobody cares about losing their job because there's just some, another job for them to go to. The thing that happens is that employers lose the power they have to threaten workers with unemployment. So you're like, oh, if you don't do your job properly, I'm going to fire you. And a worker's like, yeah, so I can go get another job. And so you start seeing like uh, things like my favorite example is the waiter that like spit in Eric Trump's food. I think it's like, <laughs> I was like, that's what three percent unemployment looks like. <laughs> <laughs> Trump's food. Oh God, let it be but, true. Yeah, uh, but I. I... <laughs> Outside of the restaurant industry, and we certainly had that here in Seattle, where there was this in- incredible shortage of uh, experienced labor in the restaurant industry just before the pandemic. But outside of that, we didn't really see that type of behavior anywhere in the labor market. And we generally, we don't see it. We still had an economy in which when states or cities raised the minimum wage, suddenly a lot of people got a raise. <laughs> so this tight labor market was not increasing wages substantially at the low end. Yeah. So I think that's, that is a good point. In fact, I think like some, some estimate I saw is like 
about one third of the wage increases that you did start to see over the last business cycle came from states raising minimum wages. So it suggests that the market alone wasn't doing that. Some other, another share of it though is due to composition. So it's that like a lot of, a lot of workers that you know you might have thought of as like permanently out of the labor force came into the labor force, but at wages that were lower than workers that were already in the labor market. And so that kind of drags the average wage down even as like it increases unemployment. So there's, and that's like probably another third. And then there's just like the other part of it, which is just the, you know, employers have market power. And so even when the labor market is really tight, they don't necessarily want to raise wages because they're making profits off every worker that, you know, when, when, they're, when they're keeping the wage low, they're making some profit off every worker. And even if they're suffering high turnover, and even if there is a worker shortage, they're still not willing to raise the wage because it's kind of profitable for them to sort of bear that high turnover and bear that labor shortage because you're making profits off all the workers that you do have. That's right. The problem employers face, of course, is that if you pay the incremental worker more, you have to pay all workers more, right? You can't bring a new person in at $15 an hour and continue to pay all of your prevailing workers $10 an hour. Well, you so can the, if they don't know. Yeah. Well, <laughs> they don't know that they're, and there's a lack of information. Yeah, of course. In but but that tends to seep out and uh, that becomes highly problematic. And so the the cost to employers goes up dramatically as the labor market tightens. And, and, and the, is that because workers get pissed? Yeah, they get uh, yeah. pissed. Okay, that's my guess is that workers get pissed yeah. and uh, that, you know, that's like a different, yeah, that's a real reason why you yeah. have to. But, you know, Suresh, I was really excited to talk to you about this forced labor concept and um, the way in which the pandemic has exacerbated coercive sort of market power because, you know, I am a frequent critic of your beloved uh, profession, yeah. uh, and uh, in particular, sort of the neoclassical framework. And one of the things I find most wanting is that it doesn't account for the most important force in human affairs, which is our relative power. You know, that at the end of the day, an economy is a set of power relationships. And as far as I know, no one has ever successfully accounted for it, either qualitatively or to, you know, to say nothing of quantitatively. And it just strikes me that I'm wondering how you think about this, because you know, neoclassical economics assumes you know, the marginalists effectively assumed power away by making price equal to value and a bunch of other tricks and so on and so forth. But we are living in a world that makes all that stuff more obviously a lie. How, how do you think about this? So, so I would, I, I feel like, I mean, it might just be my background because I came from UMass. Like I started as someone trained in heterodox economics and started yeah. learning. <laughs> I learned Marxism before I learned anything else. So, and so I always sort of always think what I get out of my discipline, actually, I feel like is a, it's kind of a more analytical take on how to think about power. So for example, you might want to think about power at kind of three different levels. You want to think about it in terms of who controls the state, what kinds of rules and rights is the state enforcing on behalf of whom. That's the kind of like political power. That's sort of the standard thing that's studied by political scientists. 
But then I think what's uniquely economic is thinking about the power inherent in the market. And you can think of multiple sources and dimensions of power exercised in the market. So one, one is kind of just regular old like monopoly or monopsony power where you know somebody has just the power to set the price and the other side has to take it. But there's also more other kinds of power. So there's, there's types of power where it's not that I have any market power, but the nature of the transaction is such that I need to, I need to maintain some sort of power over you in order to get you to work on the job or deliver the service on time or something like that. And that's what you know, we call short side power. And that's like, doesn't require imperfect competition, but it's a different kind of power that you have in, have in the economy. And then there's bargaining power, which is another kind of power. So I feel like we get like a library of ideas of power in economics. And the problem is that they're not used more, I guess, is the main problem. So I feel like the, the concepts are there waiting to be picked up, but they're just not picked up. It seems to me that there are at least two reasons for that. The first is that when you're, that the beauty of the neoliberal narrative is that it teaches people that they get what they deserve and therefore the outcomes in the society are morally justified. And that if you're complaining, you're greedy or stupid or don't understand economics or wrong or whatever, whatever it is. And the neoclassical structure, even the concept of marginal productivity, marginal utility was, was invented to make people not complain about what they got. Also, Nick, it's math that you can do. That's it. And that's the <laughs> second thing is, is it all these other things you can build a, a, you know, basically a quantitative model around, but power, how would you model power? So for example, in my, in chapter three of my book, the way I sort of one way of operating power is like what we call the, um, the envelope theorem. It's like, I can inflict, when I have power over you, I can inflict. So the way, the, the way I say is like, do you have to laugh at the jokes of your boss? And so like, if your boss is like, I can fire you and it might cause me a small inconvenience, but it's going to cause you a huge pain. It's going to be a right. huge pain for you. That's power. And that's the idea that like, I can at only, you know, the formal language is like at a second order cost to myself, I can inflict a first order cost on you. And Adam Smith writes about that. I mean, that's, that's right there in the wealth of nations. He makes that observation that the uh, employer, you know, can always outlast the employed that the worker will starve. It might be an inconvenience to the employer, but, but they, they naturally have the advantage because, well, they start with more resources. They're, they're not going to personally suffer. That's right. One of the things that gets me about power relationships, which I think a lot of people miss is how personal it is. Would you, uh, you know, go supermarket shopping and you, you buy a head of lettuce and some tomatoes and maybe some box of crackers or something. There's no personal relationship. You're, you're just buying some food. But when you, you're negotiating a wage, this is in some ways, it's face to face. It is a personal status power relationship between, you know, you and me, Nick, we get along pretty well, but you're the boss and I want to get paid as much as I can. And you don't want to get ripped off. I mean, cause you know, you, it really wouldn't be anything to you to triple my pay, but you'd feel like you were getting taken advantage of. And I think this gets back to what I was bringing up earlier. Not only is there an imbalance of power, but you have preferences that are distinct from market pressures. And maybe you have a preference, and I think a lot of employers do, to 
pay as little as they can. That might be the preference of their investors <laughs> more than, but I think you can have, and that's sort of the the thing about capitalism that you can have really nice boss, individual bosses, but the systemic pressures on employers is that you got to pay the landlord and you got to pay the, your investors and you've got to make the dividend payments. And so even if you are a nice guy, there's like real pressures on you to not give a raise. Correct. And, and one of the ways in which capitalism in the United States went off the rails a bit is when executives became shareholders and that when the, the majority of their compensation was linked to stock, their willingness to be in concert with their workers ended, right? And it, you end up with shareholder value maximization at every cost. And, you know, the rest is history. That that has been obviously a big a big part of it. But you also think that there are some 1970s Fed policies that have played a really important role in low wages. Can you explain that, Suresh? Yeah, I mean, it's like, uh, so the early 1980s recession was really like, they really hated labor unions, irrationally so. And they were really, uh, that early 1980s recession was almost deliberate to break American manufacturing unions so that they would stop pushing for wage increases that kept up with the price increases and that would break the wage price spiral. And that they're not even, they're not even like, if you read the Fred transcripts, they're, they're really just always talking about the power of labor unions. Uh, Mitchell, I think has a paper on this. Like even into the 1990s, after unions have been well, you know, broken, there's like density is falling they're still like, oh my God, the unions. <laughs> and when there's like no threat. So it's definitely, you know, I think the Fed engineered recession of the early 1980s. I feel like there's a lot of histories written about it. I still want to see the the history of it that is kind of looking at it as a concerted attack on the expectations of middle-class people and what they can expect from their jobs. Obviously it was like unions was a big part of that, but I think it happened on so many fronts. And Volcker says it, he's like, uh, you know, Americans are going to have to make uh, learn how to make do with less or something along those lines. Except for people like me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, of course, you know, th there is a lot at stake because in the day, that class of people earned 30 times the median wage. And today they earn, I don't know, 500 times the median wage. So a world in which labor unions, or, I mean, no matter what it is, I mean, maybe it's laying your labor unions, maybe it's some other mechanism that gives workers power, is a world in which the distance between the, the median wage and high wages is measured in the tens versus a world in which the distance is measured in the hundreds. And the way you get there is you eliminate worker power. And it worked super well. I think there are two things going on. It's like there is the smashing of worker power, and then there's like just the transformation, like the rise is like the rise of finance and and the intellectual property. So there's like there is a combination of the assault of the right on all the institutions of social democracy, and then there's also like a technological and trade story that are both happening at the same time. And yeah, uh, yeah. and they're hard to disentangle, but I think they certainly are both happening. Tell us um, a little bit about your thoughts about the ways in which the pandemic 
has highlighted some of these issues and what we might do to get ourselves on a better track. My God, there's so much. So I think I want to flag just like the CARES Act as like remark, like everyone's like, oh, the pandemic is exacerbating inequality. And it's true. I mean, particularly on the schools, it's just going to be, it's it's going to be a disaster. If, you know, if all the rich parents are like putting their kids in pods and all the poor and all the kids in poor families are just like not able to get any uh, access to education, that's like terrible for the long run. But in to, far of just like the raw income inequality, it was actually like the CARES Act was an enormous transfer to low-income Americans. Like $600 a week of expanded UI, that's effectively $15 an hour at 40 hours a week if you were unemployed. So the amount that that boosted incomes of what would normally be low-wage Americans was just like kind of amazing. And so I just want to flag that as like kind of holy crap, America did something incredibly progressive for once. And it was kind of maybe by accident because apparently it was done because all the UI, state level UI systems are written in Fortran and like couldn't be updated. <laughs> uh, and so they were just like, fine, let's just like implementing a more sophisticated update rule was just too complicated to do in time. So they're just like, fine, fine, screw it. 600 bucks. Let's just... <laughs> But, you know, I just uh, I just kind of want to flag that that was like a good idea. Beyond unions, what can we do to more successfully balance both the power dynamics within the economy and the outcomes produced by it? So, I mean, if I was somebody else or in a different time, I, I would be, you know, you could you can come up with like policy tools and policy options and all of that stuff. And there's probably and there's lots of ideas out there. But I'm kind of really, you know, and I think David Graeber passing recently sort of like just reiterated this for me. It's just, you know, there's really no substitute for people getting together and moving politically themselves. Like the right has money, the left has people. And so it's really the the only kind of resource is something like collective action. And it's why I keep coming back to unions. It's not because they're like a policy option, but because they're like an organic, actual people getting together and articulating a common interest and demanding it together is kind of what unions did. And there's kind of no substitute for that. And I think, so we don't have to call them unions. They can be all kinds of other organizations, community groups, data unions. I don't really care. But I think that that general idea that we're going to have to solve this ourselves and there's not like a policy fix is something I kind of <laughs> deeply think. I wonder if the economy has gotten so complex that we we actually need to rely on government rules and regulations to um, defend the rights of workers than we used to. You know, the, the old labor mo model obviously was for an industrial economy where you could, you know, unionize a Ford automobile factory where tens of thousands of people worked. That's not the economy we have today. It's just so complicated to like unionize a McDonald's when it's thousands of franchise franchisees. I, I, I mean, I don't disagree with that, but I also think there's like a lot 
like we really built unions in this country when the government puts them heavily on the scale with the war labor board. And so like AT&T is like a giant dispersed employer. It's like all of its workers are these phone operators in every little town. And they have like kind of sporadic strikes in the late 1944 and 45. And then the, you know, AT&T probably wouldn't have recognized them, but then the government just came in and told them, cut it out, recognize the union. And it happened, and that was CWA. <laughs> and uh, and so I think it's like, yeah, there's there's there. So this is like, I think it's like a symbiosis of like the you need some policy levers and hooks for people to grab onto, and then you need to like get people to like organize and take advantage of those those policy levers and hooks. Right, but that was an example of government putting its thumb on the scale. But but it was like putting its thumb on. It was react. It was it was reacting to organizing efforts by workers themselves. It was very much like, okay, there's these strikes. We can't abide by disruptions in the phone service, and so you know we're gonna we're gonna pull you guys together and make you work out an agreement, and. They they weren't doing that for every industry. They were doing that for the ones in which like workers organize themselves enough to like disrupt it. And I think that that sort of like capacity to disrupt and inflict costs is kind of the the root of it. It's like unless you you can only demand up to what you can inflict in costs is a good rule. And so if you're wanting to think about what raises power in the workplace, it's got to be like what are the tools that workers or citizens have that let them like go toe to toe with the business and like demand something. And so it's got to be some some way they have of inflicting costs. So let's talk about what the rest of us can do. Is there a role for consumers to boycott companies that we don't feel are treating workers fairly? Or does that end up hurting those workers as well? when the this is another good good point it's like when the workers themselves like ask for a boycott you should absolutely comply with the boycott so when it comes from like a union or even a like a workers rep you should absolutely comply with the boycott but just you on your own as a consumer boycotting i'm not sure like it doesn't help unless it's part of a campaign it's just you exercising your like consumer privilege i guess so unless it's part of an organized campaign to put pressure and like win a demand, you know, it's maybe makes you feel better, but it's not actually going to accomplish anything until there's like, unless it's like synchronized as part of a campaign. So if you were a benevolent dictator in, in charge of the world, what would you do? Uh, no in the United no States? political constraints. I deal with climate change. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's like a no-brainer, right? Like, uh, uh, <laughs> uh, so you're telling us you're working on the wrong issue. <laughs> yeah, it's. Uh, uh, I have, I have my, I have my little. But it's that. But it's true that, like, I'm, I'm not, I'm not an idiot. I'm like, come on, I see. <laughs> it's like the writings on the wall with like all of the. Uh, just even forget about preventing climate change. It's too late. We're we're here. But like the large scale adaptation program that we need for planet Earth, so that we can keep it livable. It's just yeah, that would be, the, and that would also create a ton of jobs and raise wages a lot. So that's like my global green new deal. That's a good answer. It's an excellent answer. Great. Well, Suresh, thank you so much. For, thank you so uh, much for having me. Yeah, and uh, when's your new book out? Well, I need to submit. It's not 
uh, uh, sometime next year, I think. Hopefully, the year after. Yeah, maybe that's, that's, the year after. That, yeah. that's that's what we always say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We've had forced labor in this country for most for for a long time. Uh, of course, we had real forced labor uh, in the very old days, but. Uh, we have, you know, a form of it today. And certainly, you know, I, th- I think that Suresh explained really well the differences in power, that the, the way in which differences in power express itself. And as worker organizing declined, uh, employer power went up. And we have this very, very difficult circumstance today that most people face. I don't want to make any false equivalency between slavery and working at a fast food restaurant. But you go back to the narratives in the first half of the 19th century defending slavery, and they said it was essential. Yeah. <laughs> that these were essential workers. Yeah. That right. the economy and the argument South was making was that not just the Southern economy, not just the plantation cotton economy couldn't work without them. They said the Northern economy couldn't either because it was that Southern cotton that was feeding the mills in the North. So there's a, a long history to saying, oh, yeah, these, these workers are essential. And by the way, paying them crap or nothing at all <laughs> is essential, too. Yeah, well, the more things change, the more things they say the same, don't they? Yeah. <laughs> uh, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> Until they don't. Until yeah. the pitchforks come, Nick. Yep. Well, it's a super interesting conversation with Suresh. And uh, just continues to remind you that, you know, America is probably not going to do better until individual Americans do better too. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunk Works and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.